I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. AI, artificial intelligence. This is our future. become dependent on robots to satisfy our every need. Man made us better at what we do than was ever humanly possible. Science will create a new order of artificial being. You're a machine. I'm a boy. Impossible. More intelligent, more feeling, and more human than ourselves. Until you were born, robots didn't dream, robots didn't desire unless we told them what to want. Some of us will embrace it. He is only a child. Monica, he's a toy. He's a gift. Others will fear it. They made us too smart, too quick, and too many. That's why they hate us. Stay away from people. Stay away from all people. Only others like you are safe. Humans, they'll stop at nothing. What do we do? We will have to journey towards the moon. Are you afraid of seeing the stars? I can show you how to reach them. The Steven Spielberg season continues into the 21st century as we pick up after our Patreon quick reviews of The Lost World, Armistad, and Saving Private Ryan with his first foray into non-dinosaur-related science fiction since E.T. the Extraterrestrial in 1982. It seems barely believable. A film that, oddly, this shares similarities with, which I will elaborate upon in a bit. But he would maintain his interest in sci-fi from this point over the next two decades with Minority Report and War of the Worlds, both of which are getting their own quick review shows, and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, all the way up to Ready Player One, both of which are getting main event episodes. And with us once again is Chris Chipman, who was there when we began this journey with Jaws and has been a regular companion on the road through Spielberg's body of work. Hello again, Chris. Hello, guys, and I hope to make it out of here as uh, safer than most companions in similar science fiction. Indeed. AI was released in June of 2001, in the closing weeks before the felling of the Twin Towers, which feature in its flooded and eventually frozen New York skyline of the future. This means we were at the gateway to the Age of Terror, a loss of innocence that we would not come back from. Innocence, but not ignorance, as plenty of that remains. This is a dark and uncomfortable story, masquerading as a syrupy fairy tale, which is very easy to overlook and underestimate. It was first picked up by Stanley Kubrick in the 80s as an adaptation of Super Toys Last All Summer Long by Brian Aldiss, which loosely makes up the first act of this film. And had Stan completed his work on it, we would have covered that movie in last year's Kubrick season. 
Sadly, Stan died in 1999 after filming his final opus, Eyes Wide Shut. Fortunately, he had brought a friend in to bounce ideas off in the form of Steve, who was often curious about his friend's work over the 80s and 90s, but was shut out of all projects save for this one. Stanley suggested after admitting defeat that he produce and Steve direct, and after his death, his widow made contact and strongly suggested that Spielberg take what pre-production already existed and make the film. What we thus got is a cold short story musing on mankind's ability to create life to amuse itself and then take no further responsibility for that life when it becomes a challenge, and that is filtered through Kubrick and then again through Spielberg who wrote two completely new acts to elaborate greatly on the premise of the short story and to give it a spin that would feel like both directors rightly had a hand in proceedings now steve deliberately wrote the screenplay on his own himself without bringing in any further writers he did this with only one other movie in his career uh chris any guesses oh man um it's an extremely personal one yeah, I was going to say uh, Schindler's List. Nope. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ah, there we go. Yeah. And, and since that was about dealing with the loss of his own father and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the breakage of his family as a result, that was, that was the level of personal that this one got to. He, he, want, he expressed in his own words, he didn't want there to be a filter of yet another party in this one. It needed to come from him and Stanley. Uh, and what Steve brings is a warmth and an uncertainty, a tone that flits between Kubrick's admonishment of human frailty and Spielberg's faith in an essential decency to be found maybe not even within us as a species, but definitely somewhere in the universe, learned from experience and hardship and the wisdom gained from taking the appropriate attitude to both. We refer to it as just humanity but I believe it goes so much further than just us. AI is a Pinocchio story about a robot child that dreams of being a real live boy, but more than that, it is a mournful notation of the passing of a species too self-absorbed to rectify the damage it could do to everything, including and especially themselves. It is thus rather heavy and existentially sharp, flinging our minds into the future and then further than most of us are comfortable with. So we are going to talk about this film in stages along David's journey from replacement child to the last vestige of mankind's doomed genius. So <clears throat> we follow on in a narration. Is this Ben Kingsley as the, yes. uh, the mecca yep. at the end? Okay. It is. Following on from the melting of the ice caps and a great displacement, the uh, human race has um, kind of reformatted itself and pregnancy has become regulated. And this has led to mecca being everywhere as a, uh, a replacement for the, the human workforce. I, honest, I'm going to start off with this with a, a, a minor criticism, which is I don't feel like Steve put enough Mecca hard at work in the film. And this is a rare one because, like, 
you know, throughout the rest of the film, I have got lots of great things to say, but I feel like that we were missing a few robot butlers, a few robot waiters, mm. robot builders. We got the scrap metal guys, like the, the the ones who had been, you know, running from these, you know, robot hungry monster truck rally. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, it feels like these are old Mecca from a bygone age. Yeah. And when one of them says, oh, I was Mecca of the year 75 years ago, it's like, well, there, there have been 75 years of robots serving humans. It almost feels like they stopped a while back mm. and he doesn't go into that. Honestly, I think that is primarily due to the fact that the short story is the backbone of the first act mm-hmm. and that's the area that Kubrick had worked on the most. Yeah. And you can tell. It's it's the creation of a very real world, but a very small corner of that real world. You get the, uh, the powerful person in charge of creating the Mecca in the first place, a group of people who are eff- effectively philosophizing mm. about the existence of Mecca. I didn't know whether these were students or shareholders. Uh, and didn't or, we dis- or employees. decide there were some employees in there mm. as well? It could, it could be a combination of all. There's some people in there who are young enough to be like trainees or something like that. But the point is that they're very... They're all wearing black turtlenecks, and there's you know barely a woman among them, and it's it that felt very Kubricky to me. Yeah, and especially the coldness of please undress, yeah, and then stop. Well, that I mean, the, one of my first notes was uh, simulacra with articulated limbs, articulate vocabularies, pain response, and basic feelings, and it's always an obedient girl. That's where they start. <laughs> I think We Hate Movies have said in the past that like, the second question regarding um, any kind of uh, uh, artificial person is, can I fuck it? It's it's just, it's right there. And I don't know how, like, the, the, there's quite so much of this in a Spielberg film. He's very frank about the fact that there are love bots everywhere. Mm, yeah. But they're, the, the, they're the workforce we, we get to see up close and personal. Mm. But the, the real world that you get to see in the first third of the movie is rich, it is full of a sense of its own control, mm. and you segue from that into what I think of as Spielberg's section of the movie, which is the fairy tale part and the hero's journey part. But this intro focuses like I said on a very small corner of the world and there isn't room in that to see them going about their day-to-day business I think if if Spielberg had elaborated more on the first part of it we probably would have seen more of that because he is very good at world building uh, but that does not tend to be Kubrick's focus yeah and and I think because of that um and I, you know, I can definitely take that as being a criticism, but I think uh, the movie this time around, because I, I haven't seen it in quite some time because I was, I saw it at 17 and owned it immediately when it came out on DVD. And I was one of like the, the one people in a large group of film friends that just didn't like it. And I thought it was unbelievable. And I'm like, what do you guys not see in this movie? But, uh, a lot of the things I didn't quite understand that didn't resonate with me as much when I was younger um, stand out now in this viewing. And this is really one of them that I feel is almost intentional. They want to put you in David's shoes mm. and they want your view of the world to be the same as David's. To be as narrow so, as So his. lots yeah, of humans, that's, you can't really tell where the mecha are. Goes, I'm so sorry I never told you about the world mm. before yeah. she leaves him is 
your this is when the movie goes hold on because you're about to get your world turned the hell upside down and that then when so when you meet the scavenger robots that are running from the flesh fair you get the here's a nanny that's going to try to comfort the kid and here's your doctor robot that's going to pull this other robot's pain receptors so they don't you know feel excruciating pain as they're murdered in front of a crowd um it's just unbelievable that the parallel that they do there of the stark contrast of hey yeah the movie got a little dark already but you have no idea mm. where we're going with this yet so, I, I, yeah. I think you're absolutely right now if it, if it felt like well just like if you can you know get an apprenticeship as a butler bot you could maybe be uh, a mini version of that for the rest of your life that the without giving us those neat little niches that uh, in the service industry that robots would have dropped into we don't get the uh, the easy out for David. Um, there's another... Yeah. It's not even really a criticism of the film. It's a criticism of the man who made David. Okay, so the, the, the premise is he, he is gifted to a, uh, uh, a young-ish married couple whose son is sadly in a coma. Um, it's sadly until he wakes up, he's a horrible little shit. Uh, but oh uh, until he wakes up, you, you feel Harry sorry Potter's for him and for that. Yeah, he's worse than Dudley. Oh, he's psychotic. Yeah. But yeah, like until he wakes up, you're like, oh, those those poor people, and you can sort of understand where they're where they're coming from. They are effectively gifted the world's first truly convincing uh, mecha boy, and they they make a very fine point of. They didn't. They don't make children out of uh, uh, bots. But again, with the seventy-five year thing, you'd think they would try, and then you'd also think they did try, and then there were and it went, horribly, it went wrong. horribly wrong for reasons that the doctor in this hobby just is going to ignore. One of the things that this absolutely reminds me of, and it's in Monica's reaction to him, and in Hobby's motivations for creating him in the first place, and it's the. It's the part in Interview with the Vampire where um, Louis is talking to Madeline yeah. and about Claudia. And uh, Claudia's this little girl vampire who was turned when she was 11 and, and will never grow old and will never die. And uh, he says to Madeline, what do you think she is? And Madeline says, a child who cannot die. And it's obvious that she is... Uh, seeking connection with Claudia because she lost her own child. And it is incredibly Mm. sad, but it is also pathological. It is not healthy. And it it really kind of, again, it's a a criticism of the character, not of the film, because I I don't think that the film is exactly saying, well, hey, isn't it great that he did this? Quite, yeah, no. Quite the the reverse. Um, But it was was infuriating to see Hobby stand there and rationalise what he was doing with arguments that just made me think, but even as you're saying this out loud, can't you see Mm. how wrong this is? The criticism I was going to lay at his feet is that David doesn't have a trial mode, really. When he first turns up, he is a creepy little robot kid who keeps behaving strangely in a way that no parent who wants a child would be happy with he you know he keeps sneaking up and staring unblinking at you in a way that's kind of cute but then there's an intensity behind it like it's a kubrick film which is neat monica is supposed to the the mother played wonderfully by uh, francis o'connor uh, is supposed to decide whether she wants to keep him and then enter the code that will make him love her 
but she doesn't get to sample what that would be like before entering the code that makes it permanent. It seems like it'd be like deciding to buy a TV and going to a shop to say, could you please give me a demonstration? And them saying, right, we can only keep it on dynamic mode. Like that sports mode that means you get everything in slip slidey soap opera effects. So you can watch the Avengers, but it looks like everything's like happening behind a glass screen and it's weird and it's it's got that uncanny valley effect. And you, and you, you asked... Okay, so do you want the TV? Well, I don't know. I want to watch movies. Can it do movies? Oh, yeah, it's, it's really good at movies. Can I see it? No, 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 no. Not until you have to bind yourself to this TV forever. And if you don't like it, you've got to send the TV back to us for destruction. Just give us a minute to, 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 to give us that mode. Like, it even kind of would fit in with the story where she's like, okay, so just show me what he would be like if, if he loved me. And then she becomes intoxicated with that demonstration mode. And I would, I would suggest that the rationale behind them doing this is that when you have your own child, you don't get a trial mode with your own child. You don't get to... Like, now, the little creeps who stare at you with glassy a, eyes. A couple of days, and if it doesn't work, turn back time so that true, it never happened. But, Although I think I've said this before um, when we did our show on raising geek children. And I know, um, uh, Chris, you've got like a whole podcast on this. But yep. the first time I tried to tickle Lyra, I was like... And she just stared at me with these black eyes. Like a doll's eyes. And I'm like, you don't understand tickling. Okay, let me know when you've been included on this one and we'll try this again. <laughs> and she did eventually yeah, learn it. Yeah, because they uh, don't when they're babies. But yeah, it's, that's not innate. Mm. Well, it is. It, so, it develops as they get older. But mm. the, the thing is, what I was going to say was, with real children, when you get them, they're tiny and they grow and you adapt and you learn as they get older. David is handed to them fully formed it's it's more like an adoption than it is a, a having your own child and can you imagine adopting or fostering a child and being told oh if you send them back <laughs> we must destroy them ah. Ah. <laughs> yeah it this movie rides the strangest fine lines until it gets to the flesh fair mm-hmm. in being a movie that makes me look at it and go I wonder what this film's stance on abortion is. And then and then and then you get to the flesh fair and you go, Okay, cool, we're in equal company. I, I get you, you I, I agree with exactly what you're saying now, movie. Hmm. <laughs> but that first half makes you wonder. It's like what is it trying to say? Like it's it's very odd and I I really give it credit, you know, this and War of the Worlds are the two closest things Spielberg has come, in my opinion, to making full-on horror. Mm. Like, this movie does not let up. Like, in, in you know, we say that the best thing about the Amblin era of movies is that they were, they were films that were light enough for children to watch and had childlike sensibilities, but the kids were in real danger and actual bad stuff could happen. And this movie is... That blending of Spielberg and Kubrick with the there's not a whole lot of comfort mm. in this film. <laughs> it's brutal. Yeah. And this this first half. I, I wonder if, you know, if what happened between them and David would have been doomed even if their son didn't come back. Hmm. You know? 
Uh, honestly, it, when the sun comes back and is like, hey, you should break things. They're better when they're broken. And hey, you should cut mummy's hair. You know, uh, mummy will love you more if you do. Uh, I'm actually under the impression that uh, on a long enough timeline, yeah, things without this horrible kid might have gotten pretty good. Like, the, uh, Monica and uh, David would have developed a bond of trust and been very honest with each other, I think, eventually. Mm. Um, the problem and the loose link in the chain here is Henry, who doesn't enter the bonding code and seems mildly disinterested in this surrogate son. He's bought him for his wife. Yeah, he's bought her well, he's right. brought a grown-up version of Teddy. Yeah. Well, and he's he's also there. The intentions, unfortunately, no matter how good they are between Professor Hobby and with mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. is they're replacing something they don't have anymore. Yeah, Hobby Hobby is replacing his son. He's not having a new child. He's trying to replace his son. Yeah, and specifically a, a duplicate of the exa- yeah, the original it's David. Yeah. Deal you of his son it's it's a it's that you know nostalgia unattainable thing mm. and that's exactly what they've done by replacing henry with david mm. and martin. the unfortunate kink the unfree sorry martin i apologize get, i'm, I'm the, fine with replacing henry with david as well though. <laughs> he sucks the unfortunate uh the unfortunate um negative side is that once you have martin back mm. there is no replacing your real son that's that's the hard thing. Even if your real son is a terrible person, yeah, you know there there is no. I don't know. I think you could probably just like take them all white water rafting and hope for the best. <laughs> uh, <laughs> seriously, the, the, this kid is just a, a terrible. Like he is uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho, just waiting to happen. He's he is... like he has this like no empathy at all. And then his friends who crowd around him are like, "Yeah, let's look at his dingaling. Yeah, what do you got down there?" And then I'm just gonna stab you a bit. And it's like, oh, like it, leave this again. Long enough timeline Actually, because of this horrible boy and his horrible friends. That, how long before David is horribly hurt? That answers my next question because I was going to say, look at it the other way around. If they'd never got David and then Martin had come back and she'd been able to give Martin her whole attention, mm. would he have grown into a better person? But Probably his not. friends, no, 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 he wouldn't. No, he'd have he'd have ended up an absolute horror. Uh, the the behaviour of this cluster of friends, um, I I don't know how much this would have played into it, um, but they're all going to be only children. None of them will have siblings. Mm. If you have to apply for every pregnancy, it's highly unlikely that they would let a family have two. Also, I hope that throughout the next few decades, whenever um, uh, Martin phoned her up and went, Ma, I killed someone again. you got to make Dad cover it up. She just lo- looked back and thought, I just left the wrong boy in the wilderness, didn't I? Well, this one's on me. I get the feeling from one line of dialogue for a quick jumping ahead with Professor Hobby later that Monica left her husband in Martin very quickly after this happened. Because oh, nice. from the way Hobby talks about David through Monica, Monica told me about this. It's like, I don't think Monica was able to live with herself all that well after this situation. She was definitely, like, yeah, she was definitely She was cracking in, at that point um, when she, she left him in the wilderness like friggin' lassie. Yeah, she was definitely involved in tracking him down. She mm. clearly went to Hobby afterwards or he came to her and, and she explained what had happened. Mm. I love, love, love that I've gotten to do so many of these Spielberg deep dives with you because mm-hmm. this movie yet again has a mimicking scene at a at a table. Oh yes, even mimicking the the mother and father eating breakfast with, and I love 
that that comes up so often in this guy's stuff. Nice. And it, John Williams even sort of like brings in that that quieter. Like there's a really lovely kind of subtlety to to this film the whole way through. But then there's elements of it that feel like Philip Glass. And then yep. there, there's times when you you want majesty and he gives you creepy and and threatening sounding and 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 uh, he's uncompromising, which is entirely in line with um, uh, uh, Spielberg's direction like he, he deliberately wants to keep wrong footing you and making you uncomfortable when you know you want to be just given something you know nice and easy to digest so out of his normal bag of tricks like this yeah. whatever place he needed to be in to make this movie i would not have wanted to have been around him during it because this is yeah. this is directed by a narcissist mm. <laughs> this thing is um, a little movie. I, I think he, he he just had this determination to I must do this movie for Stan and uh, and to that end he, I think he kind of absorbed like like Kirby he sucked in Stan's uh, <laughs> abilities and then uh, and then got and his hair cut and beard <laughs> <laughs> and and that like that thousand yard stare of his interesting thing though whenever anyone who was in you know professional talks about Stan Kubrick you know while we talk about him being uh, reclusive and crabby he was apparently such a nice guy <laughs> like he was really yeah. gentle and quiet with everyone that he knew and so uh, you know we we rib him mercilessly on his cold films but from the sounds of it he um, wouldn't hurt a fly um, the the section where just before she takes him effectively like like taking a young pet, way too young for this, to the vet to be put down. Um, back, you know, after the swimming pool incident, uh, he he writes a bunch of notes. Now it felt like Steve was putting this in because it's directly from the book, and it would have been in Stan's version of events. It doesn't really tie into the rest of the film, but it's like David is trying to work out who he is in this equation. And, you know, he's like, I, I, I love you, and I'm sure Henry gets a kick out of me being here, and, and Martin, and we'll all be a family together, and Teddy, but not Teddy. In the original short story, David was scornful of Teddy. He was like, that is a toy, that is not me, I'm a live, real boy. Uh, but the book just kind of ends there, where with David kind of musing on his existence and the, uh, the parents knowing they've got to take him to be destroyed. End of short story. That's what most short stories and novellas and sci-fi novels were like in the uh, 20th century. Stick they, it in, break it yeah, off. They were there to jab at you and make you think <laughs> and then retreat. Like rather than making doing anything conclusive and certainly not in giving you any kind of relief. Which would account for the uh, amount of 70s sci-fi that was there to make you feel something strongly, but be confused about what it was you were feeling. <laughs> the, the, the way people talk about those when that's the kind of story they like as well, I find really stressful because they're like, oh, closures for babies. No! <laughs> I need it! <laughs> I don't know, like, so some of us have a lot of anxiety to Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we like to be able to resolve. The world is terrible. I don't necessarily need a happy ending, but I need yeah. an ending. Oh, you're, you're reading about dystopian sci-fi? Oh, my sweet 20th century child. <laughs> I'm living it. <laughs> when we get to the actual ending, ending mm. of this, because I won't blow it out, but when I was 17, uh. I was fully one of those cynics that was like, you need the end of the movie here to just really crush people. And I'm not going to say what here is yet, but when we get, but I am so happy watching it now with, mm. with how it wraps itself up, even though 
will talk about whether it's happy or not. I'm just happy where it ends up rather well, than what I thought it should have. Formed. You'll be happy to know that uh, movies that feel like they were made by a 17-year-old edgelord are still happening. <laughs> oh, we're yes. on a director's cut any minute now. Actually, let, let's just finish off the, the bit that, um, that, that Steve then takes us to, a, to new territory. Uh, Monica decides not to uh, take David uh, to be disassembled and leaves him at the side of the road. And I very specifically said this was a key moment for her. She really, really had to work out a recourse with David that wasn't just leaving him here, like a little dog going, why are you leaving me here? And and rather just going, fly, fly, dog! Just actually explaining to him a little bit more than, like, she's looking around like the Stasi are going to round them up at any point, but it's, it really comes down to most people will assume this is a child. If you find a place for him that's actually safe, like no one's going to grab you and grab him and mar- frog march him back for disassembly. Ultimately, that, that you know, it, you're effectively kind of stealing property here, but at the same time, the, the police in this world are rubbish. You could steal a squad car from them and they won't do shit about it. child can steal a squad car from them. <laughs> and fly, like, not even subtly. A child could steal a squad car and, like, bash it about in the street and then go for a Back to the Future the ride around the place in, and no one's given chase. In their defense, Hobby by that point was clearly tracking him mm. and... And they had clearly been given How? instructions to let him go. How was he tracking it? I have no idea. But he I'm has guessing... no tracker, Sharon. No, I know. There's but... no tracker no, in the child. We were following you up And to there's no tracker in the aquacopter. I'm guessing there's lots of CCTV in Rouge Ah, City. CCTV. Do you know what they also have? Trackers that they put in. Yep. Exp- I can find where my iPad is right now. It's a bit less complex than David. The, basically, the, the not being a tracker in there is a massive convenience for the end of the movie, where it's like, where did David go? And no one ever finds out. And it's like, beep, beep, beep. I mean, he's right there. Do you know what, though? If David's not trackable, that amphibicopter definitely is. No, no, it's not. They don't put trackers in anything. <laughs> They, they, they've been tracking David. They almost lost him. Do you know why? How they almost wouldn't have lost him if they put a tracker in him. This, this to me is the same issue I have with with Minority Report, which mm-hmm. you're going to be talking about soon. With how come his removed eyes get him back into the place he worked after he was fired and put put on trial? Basically, oh yes, it doesn't make any damn sense. Oh, Minority Report, written by Philip K. Dick, who also wrote Total Recall, uh, in which Doug Quaid had a tracker in him. It was up his nose. Do you know how difficult it was to get out? We had to see him go. <laughs> Anywho. Anywho. Sorry. I, that, that's just me getting my other criticism. That's an actual criticism of the film because it asks us to overlook this thing nope, that would totally be in there. Yeah. Okay. So, Jigolo Joe, what do you know? One of the most charming roles for Jude Law in, in his career, this um, plasticky looking love bot, uh, who's uh, af- uh, affected with uh, a lot of um, Gene Kelly style dance moves uh, that he very specifically learned how to uh, pull off to get that kind of physicality in the, his performance. Um, he has he sort of veers back and forth between kind of being a Cockney wide boy, being a very sweet, very compassionate, very good listener, but also very um, p- 
persuasive talker of a, a lover, but occasionally he will veer into uh, like snow crash level uh, philosophy where he's like, they made us too numerous, too smart and too fast. Like that one speech effectively explains the end of the movie, but it comes out of nowhere and then doesn't go anywhere. It's like Joe is absolutely crucial as a guide in, in this, but he's this massive enigma regarding what Joe really knows mm. and who Joe really is, because he keeps showing us all these different faces and there's, um, there's also no consistency. Well, he, right. I find, I actually find Joe a really fascinating character from the sense that he is the very definition of a people pleaser. <laughs> Everything he does is exactly right for the moment and the circumstances. It's exactly what the person he's dealing with wants mm. to see and wants to interact Even with. Even that philosophical bit is what David is needed what David to hear at that exact that precise point. moment. Exactly. But that is how he's programmed. So you're absolutely right that we never really know how much of what's coming from Joe is really him. Hobby being so uh, waxing so lyrical about how uh, David had made decisions for himself and extrapolated his own information, um, and this was the first time a robot had ever done that, I personally think he's wrong. Because we see from the robots in the flesh fair, they express the desire not to be hurt. Mm. They express the desire not to die. Please don't kill me. I was a good robot. And also, to say that David made his own decisions about where he would go and what clues he would follow, they programmed him with those clues. That information comes directly from mm. Hobby's office. So I, it And just... so much of what he does is just wandering into the next scene before being then propelled into the next scene. Absolutely. By and forces it, it... beyond his control. It kind of reinforces for me the idea that the human race has created these mecha and they know next to nothing about the internal mm. workings of yeah. them, the, the how it, they actually feel, how they see the world. They don't know. It's human self-serving science. Yeah. It, it's it, even Hobby is saying, I'm going to say this is what's going on mm. because this serves my hypothesis. Absolutely. I need yeah. this to not that it is mm. um and because of that the movie has there is not a single narrator or not a single character you can trust mm. outside of the observers at the end of yeah, the I film ben kingsley you can trust yeah yeah and i find that fascinating that mm. the the movie the movie passes tons of judgment without passing specific judgment it's very very amazing that they're able to walk that line mm. and not have the movie careen into okay this is going to be a story all about the um the philosophy of this like it could have become the you know end of matrix revelations you know what i mean mm. <laughs> like or you know where it just has like a we're gonna have a 45 minute philosophical discussion now and instead it peppers the movie with that stuff but keeps you focused on propelling David yeah. forward, and I think that's fascinating. This would be, uh, I think, most of Act 2. If we count Act 3 as, as basically everything from when David plummets out of the uh, um, the, the building, um, the, the skyscraper in New, in New York, uh, everything between him being rejected by Monica uh, up to finding out who he really is is Act 2, and that is Steve going, right, I've, I love this character setup we've got now what do we do with him and sending him like propelling him on this uh this quest this mystical mythical fairy tale quest uh that he doesn't really understand but uh, he's he's just really driven on and 
I think, again, a lot of modern audiences uh, would have uh, rejected many elements of this because it does feel a little twee. Like, some of the uh, sides of the film skew a little too young and some of them are way too dark for the kind of kids that you would imagine those skew at. Well, they hang a hat on it when Joe says in the information booth, combine fact with fairy tale. That's what this section of the story is. Yeah. Well, you've got like the, the, the tone dissonance uh, between Robin Williams yucking it up as this Albert Einstein genie over on the left and then uh, Jude Law going, a fairy's tale. Would you stop talking about ass for two seconds, Joe? <laughs> We're trying can't. to focus. There's a kid here. It's his raison d'etre. I got kids here and, and so, so have you. <laughs> oh, my God. I love Joe taking him through like Blade Runner land and mm-hmm. getting married. Like, I can't wait to show you inside her. Yeah. Talking about Oh, you mean the city made of asses? Giant neon asses and mouths and vaginas and tits. This 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 movie is child endangerment. Stop yep. now. Hooters the ride. It, I mean, there are times when it is like they had a real kid on set here. <laughs> Just like he's he's being asked to walk through the legs of this giant woman statue thing. Anyway, looking back at this movie, yeah, it's hard to remember how in love with Haley Joel Osment Hollywood and the world was looking at him now because the kid you know he's he's had a different career after these movies right it kind of petered off like a lot of them do but he's still working but holy hell was he putting in like an award level performance in this movie this is not an easy role yeah by any stretch he's absolutely fantastic in this i was going to start with a thing about this being a completion of the Haley joel osmond trifecta uh, as we did the sixth sense several years ago and that and this are two absolutely astonishing performances we also covered as a quick review secondhand lions which is like his last child role on the screen but then I forgot about Pay It Forward, which I really didn't like as a film, and I don't want to be pressured into doing that one. Uh, I love the sensibilities of it. I hated the execution, literally, of it. But, yeah, Haley Joel Osment is absolutely, like, just the, the level of intensity and commitment to this role. And if you want to put your tinfoil hats on, folks, if you look at the concept art for this film that was done in the sort of the late 90s, uh, like, you know, very late 90s you know just before production um if you look at what david looks like he's kind of looking like a stable boy with a pudding bowl haircut my like i think steve had been told hey steven i've got this kid he's gonna be big his name's jake lloyd oh no and he's going to be in the Phantom Menace! He's going to be my Anakin Skywalker! And that uh, the concept artist was given pictures of him and, and, and drew pictures of David based on what Anakin looked like. And then Steve saw the Phantom Menace and went, uh, oh, oh, God, no. And then he saw the Sixth Sense and went, oh, no, this one. This is the one I actually want. And then they, they kind of did a switcheroo there, and thank God. Could you, could you imagine this film with Jake Lloyd? And I don't want to... I don't want this to, 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 like, to hurt the adult Jake Lloyd who has suffered almost as much as Ahmed Best, uh, you know, yeah. as the vengeance of the fans, the shit, shit fans wreaking that upon him. So, but, but ultimately, uh, Lloyd's performance in The Phantom Menace was nothing like uh, um, Osmond's in The Sixth Sense. In fact, I remember at the time thinking these are like night and day in the same year as just this absolutely bone-chilling performance that, a, that an adult would not be able to pull off. And then... Yeah, 
the yeah. amount of hatred when things are taken from him that like he makes you feel such empathy for it even oh, yeah. though you're like stunned when he witnesses the first robot version of himself and his immediate reaction is you're going to take her from me mm. and just kills it yeah it's like whoa like because they make you they make you you know fall in love with him like, what a this cute is little guy yeah agony. and then and he's then full of this rage this, this was a mistake his existence is a mistake. Like, this is not good. He's a short version of Roy Batty in Blade Runner. Yeah, and it would be yeah. it would be uh, intriguing to see whether that aggression and that fear of being replaced exists in all of them, or if that is something that David has learned because he was a replacement from Martin. Yeah. And if he yes. was a replacement, then he can be replaced. Mm. Wow. But- or is it simply the byproduct of the obsession that David is programmed to feel? Um, it's... Also, the Jake Lloyd thing real quick. Mm-hmm. We do know how that would look. He'd be in the amphibicopter looking at the blue fairy and we'd get, Are you an angel? Oh, <laughs> now that's stuck in my head. Sorry. Okay, let's try spinning. That's a good trick. Just to go back briefly to Rouge City, it does serve a purpose, even though it is a, um, it's a, there's a discrepancy between bringing a child into this very, very adult environment. Mm-hmm. But if you think of the this middle section as being David's hero's journey, he is effectively hitting a point where he should be coming of age, mm. but he can't yes. because he can't age. He can't grow. It's not possible for him to develop into somebody who would appreciate the adult nature of you what's want to talk going about, around him. You want to talk about the hero's journey, the meeting with the goddess. I think he might have the record for the guy who stays with the goddess the longest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you really need to be moving on, David. No, 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 just a little bit longer. Gigolo Joe, going back to him, I just wanted to uh, point out the, the thing about when he checks into the hotel room after being very kind to uh, the lady who played Trixie in uh, Deadwood, uh, then goes to his next client and finds that she's been murdered by her husband, who's like, hey, Joe, what do you know? And then th- then basically sort of gives a very clipped speech about, you know, I knew she was seeing people behind my back. I just didn't realize it would be you. And then Joe's like, oh, I'm buggered. And there's no attempt of any kind of conflict between uh, between the two of them. But Joe's just like, right, so I'm going to be a hunted mecca. Like, there's not even any point me saying, you do realize that this is the equivalent of a man being so furious that his wife uses a vibrator that he murders her and then ble- frames the vibrator and the police hunt the vibrator. That's what's going on here, folks. It's impressive, almost, to see that having completely destroyed the world outside and regulated everything that they possibly humanly can and created robots for the purposes of having sex with and being so furious about their own replacement that they shred them to bits, Mm. uh, women are still in for the receiving end of shitty behaviour yeah. in this world. Like, can't, can't you just take your hatred out on robots instead of women? But or? even, like, uh, Still... Patricia, the first woman that um, oh, yeah, that she's been Joe's with, she's horrendously been abused. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> Toxic masculinity, mm. still alive and well. But By the way, the whole vibrator parallel is not my criticism of the movie, it's my criticism of men who actually <laughs> would be that pissed off at a love bot. And I gotta say, for 2001... 
this movie is extremely progressive in pointing those things out. Yeah. Like, you know, like 2001 was like the, you know, that was the, the height of the Michael Bay, you know, misogyny and racism era of, of filmmaking. So, you know, this is, this is a big deal. Yeah. So uh, that moves us very neatly onto the Flesh Fair, which uh, is, uh, like I said, like a, like a monster truck extravaganza, and it crystallizes how the human race in general feels about Mecca after, as we said, at least 75 years of experimentation with what they can do for us. Humans feel threatened, disgusted, and murderous, baying for oil in a cultish frenzy that we find all too familiar, as they mine the destruction of the beings that intimidate them for entertainment with a disdainful hatred. And this we're led into this with that giant moon, the the, the giant Love full that. moon balloon thing. It's 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 a great visual design, but it's also I think that's a reference to ET. I think that, that yeah. declares that the whole thing was a childlike illusion and the reality is the slow self-destruction of our race whilst attempting to eliminate the successes that we regret creating. They both both films share mirrored titles, as in E.T. the Extraterrestrial, AI Artificial Intelligence. They're both about lost boys leaving the safety of the home for the immense wilderness with a strange new friend. But at the end of E.T., the advanced aliens fly off on a rainbow and tell us that everything's going to be okay. In this one, the advanced synthetics sprinkle fairy dust to send us to sleep so that we don't have to feel the immensity of grief for what has been lost. Yep. Yep. I'm crying now. Yep. Fuck. Um, there is uh, the flesh fair ends on this really dissatisfying we don't have to talk about like we've already described it it's it's just it goes it goes on I do want to point that the flesh fair two things Mm -hmm. that the tagline and I didn't realize this at 17 years old how much this meant Mm -hmm. is flesh fair celebration of life Mm -hmm. oh my oh you people Had a little bit too much of that in recent years. This, by the way, folks, has been the longest four years of my existence. I know we've we've heard this repeatedly, but the last four years have taken one thousand years to elapse. Yeah, and I all I can say, like I say in all these podcasts, is I'm embarrassed to be American, mm. and that's all I have to say about that. Um, there was, I mean, this ties in with that. The one bit at the end, how David gets out of the flesh fair, rings hollow. This is actually a criticism of the film. Like I said, that, that Steve is so desperate to propel him from one bit to the next that he makes one point, which is that they don't make uh, children meccas. And when he gets dragged at the uh, to the front by get the fuck away from me, Brendan Gleeson, um, who, who just then decides he's going to play MC and talk to the whole crowd and goes, "Oh, do not be fooled by this young boy." Then the crowd sort of look at David, going, "Please don't kill me," and then suddenly. The crowd of baying racist maniacs who are desperate to see... Like, we've just seen a a sweet-natured au pair bot whose only program was take care of your children, have her face melted off with battery acid while still smiling, and then they're suddenly like, their hearts grow three sizes too big and they start pelting him with rotten fruit and it's like, oh, no, let him away, he's just a child. No. That's that's a that's a that's a little bit of candy. That's a spoonful of sugar to help this fucking medicine go down, and it rings totally hollow with everything we've seen. They would be like, "Let me hear you say straight pride." Straight pride. 
especially now. Remember, in, in 2001, hmm. we were we were about to be when this movie came out. You know, it, it came out. You said right before 9/11. So the existence of this movie existed in a time where we were coming together over our differences. Hmm. Not to say that that wasn't all hollow as well, because it's been proven that our differences were all still there, and we were just waiting for an excuse to hate each other again. Hmm. But then this movie. You know that we. I needed that fairy tale. I needed that sugar given mm. to me. Now I watch it and I just go, "Oh, why is there propaganda in my beautiful Spielberg movie?" Something that did occur to me about that actually, the the statements about Mecca don't plead for their lives, and and we we can see that that is not entirely true, and the the people living in this delusion that they don't feel, I don't know whether they think they don't feel pain, but certainly that it is okay to hurt them, that we are not doing anything morally wrong by treating them as if they were car spare parts or something like that. It, it makes me wonder if all along they've been programmed that any pain they feel, any desire they have, any want that they manifest that is not something that they've been programmed with, that they have fail-safes that make them keep that stuff concealed and not display it in front of humans because they express it in front of each other and actually that ties in with what Monica says about only Mecca are safe, stay away from humans if that means that if he's with Mecca then regardless David can express how he really feels maybe that's the part of um, making a, a child who can love the fallout for that is that they also have to express frustration or anger or, you know, I mean, I, I laughed at Henry's, if he if he can love, we have to assume that he can also hate. It's an we have to assume statement. That? No, we don't have to assume that he, he definitely will. But if he can express love, if those fail-safes have been taken off to allow him to express uh, positive feelings that, that or, well, that would be interpreted as positive feelings. That's certainly the intention, although they may not come out that way. But that he, you know, he might need to say to someone, you stop hurting me. And to think that other Mecca have been able to feel that, but not tell anybody that they're being hurt. That's yeah. quite traumatizing. The shut off my pain, the shut off my pain receptors thing mm. breaks me. Why was so, I programmed to feel pain? Um, I mean, this also, is so that robots can prevent themselves from being damaged further than an initial amount of damage. I sense injury, the data could be called pain. Yeah. It is logical that they would have some kind of sensor in that direction. But they shouldn't be programmed to feel agony. Mm. Well, this is the thing. Yeah. Even, like, people have a broad spectrum of the level to which they feel pain. We can never really know how much pain another person is feeling because they're... Mm detection of it will be different from ours hmm. yeah this this conversation after saying the original thing we said about calling a little bit of bs on why the crowd wouldn't turn on you know i, I i'm thinking about it again and instead of it being sugar to make the crowd seem less evil hmm. i think it actually if you take a different spin on it is pointing out exactly what happens in the real world right now you can kill and wipe out thousands of people that people believe are less than them and they won't bat an eye hmm. the same thing happens to their child when they have to fight and be aggressive and go Karen down to the police station you know or wherever to get laws put in place that's the kind of people that this is showcasing hmm. the kind that 
hey, all of a sudden it's perfectly wrong that we've been doing this the whole time because it's a kid doesn't mean they don't go home and just kill another server bot again you know what i mean it just means that they're mad at this particular guy because he tried to get them to kill a child mm. there, there are it, ways this could have been handled that, that, yeah. that aren't just like and then david got away yes and yeah. then the world is fine again yeah moving because, on because Roo remember City. this this movie still has to end with the human waste race getting wiped out. We're obsolete. Well, you call this human waste. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, actually we've, we've pretty much covered uh, Rouge city. It is lovely to, uh, to hear a little uh, uh, Robin Williams as uh, that uh, character. Although again, it was frustrating. It was like, okay, Jigolo Joe, like we've got, six questions left and we can see that like asking a question very clearly he will be very unhelpful in his answers joe you don't have google up there somewhere like can we do something with this it's again this is the one of the last trips last think about it one of the final trips to the analog future where there is no internet really imagine if every google search cost you a dollar jesus (laughs) yeah you remember text messages costing you money. I, I've had to tell young kids I work with that. They go, what do you mean? On a side note, just to talk about the uh, the, the technical side of things, this re- this is a wonderful kind of... It's not so much a last gasp for, but it's we're now edging into the final uh, few decades of them using miniatures. The, the, miniatures still get made for uh, uh, movies. What, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, yeah. Blade Runner 2049 used miniatures, which is... And um, Force Awakens did as well. Excellent. Excellent. Because um, th- there's some wonderful usage of them here, and, and we, Sharon and I have lamented this in the past, that um, when you use CGI to make everything, that that's fine, but it does phase out a whole discipline of set design and world building, literal world building in movies. And, you know, map painting's gone, miniatures gone, the the bigotures of Lord of the Rings replaced by just CG for The Hobbit. It's dreadfully sad, and, and it, it is in keeping with this film's funereal, almost, uh, uh, dirge for humanity that... that we, we get to see the early burgeoning CG and practical and model work kind of working in tandem here, much like Jurassic Park, but this is at the other end of that decade. Yeah. Well, they're used thematically, which I think helps the uncanny valley effect of the film. There's more model work and practical effects towards the beginning of the film, and mm. gradually as it as it fades to the... Uh, the the future environment. Mm. Everything is CG. Everything there has been not everything because uh, in that last bit with the ice, they could just have gone here is a big ice chamber. We did the whole thing with CG because we oh, didn't want to make the kid yeah. cold. They slathered that set in yep. real ice, and every time it melted, they put more, more ice, ice in. On it. It's got but to the, be authentic, and it feels so cold. Yeah, but the but the buildings and the yeah. the sets at that point were um, were all done uh, in camera. Hmm. Uh, not in camera. The opposite of that, in post. Wait, scratch I mean. that. Reverse <laughs> it. <laughs> it's, it's, that's awesome. It's amazing how fantastic hmm. this movie still looks. And there's movies that were made 10 years after it that don't hold up as well. Absolutely. And also the, the Blu-ray of this. I've been watching the DVD for 20 years. I Holy hell. 
the Blu-ray of this on an OLED screen is magnificent. And I've been finding this more and more with, uh, with films being brought to life on this. I've, I've gone out of my way to... Um, we watched one or two of the Spielbergs for quick reviews, like Amistad, in, on DVD. And I've gone, right, not happening with the, with the, the second half of uh, Spielberg's career. I have gone out of my way to find on Blu-ray every single one of those uh, films that I missed or just got on DVD before. A quick thing about the model work and CG, because I've always felt that Spielberg was a perfect example of someone that just always seemed to know how to use ILM properly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that means that he just runs a good ship or if he hires the right people or if it's just but there's something about the look of his stuff between this movie and Minority Report and mm. War of the Worlds in particular that just still looks so much better than any of the work anyone else was doing at the time. Because mm. remember, this wasn't too much longer after The Mummy Returns, and oh my God, <laughs> is there a Same huge yet. difference b- between the quality. But um, there's a quote I always loved, and if I've said this in this season before, we could take it away. And I don't know, it's one of those like rumor quotes, you don't know how true it is, but George Lucas and Martin Scorsese and Spielberg were on set for um, uh, Gangs of New York. And I don't particularly like that movie, but the set designs and everything are beautiful. Like Scorsese put a lot of time into Mm. making that movie look fantastic. Absolutely. And Lucas was going around, you could have saved so much money just doing this all in CG. And supposedly (laughs) Scorsese turned to like a key grip and went, has he seen the last couple movies he's made? (laughs) Me, yeah. That's the best part. Okay, so... Now we get into the depressing part of our already depressing movie. Well, it's it's depressing, but it's thought-provoking, like, in in the way that that goes beyond the average short story of a a 20th century um, that's just designed to make you think... This is designed to make you think deeper, rather than just David pondering his existence. David ponders his existence, and then things go further. So, um, before we get there, it just made me think about... David's expression of love for Monica, and I, I, I said this because I've, I've I've delineated the difference repeatedly on the podcast. Uh, this is not love. This is obsession. The kid is absolutely fixated on his mother. Hence the savage, explosive response when he meets the other version of David. Mm-hmm. And if anything, Monica seemed to display a little more love for him in that she lets him go for his own good. Um, Very human. Yeah, just hoping that he might, just so that she can tell herself he might find himself a home, but she doesn't take the responsibility for him to actually find that home with him and for him. That's her crucial flaw. But she still exhibits enough love to let him go for his own good. He wants her badly because he was programmed by people who don't understand the difference between love and obsession specifically his quote-unquote father figure hobby who is obsessed with the dead child that he loved like he he feels both those things he's unable to let him go and so obsessively he recreates him like victor frankenstein here's the thing he he pro- he says he's programming these children to feel love and to express love. Love is different for everybody. Yeah. It can't be programmed. You, you can't... 
you can't lay out a set of behaviours and say this is love in all cases and hmm. without exception. It doesn't work that way. And and I think there is a degree of there would need to be free will if you were going to program something to learn to feel and express mm. love it would have to have the freedom to find its own way to do that otherwise it's worth nothing yeah. this uh, david acts the whole way through like someone who has drunk a love potion and is gripped with a powerful infatuation Indeed. but it's, it is. it's not coming from a place of this is how this makes me feel he is forced to love mm. and in a way that's that's the love of a a, a tiny baby but would you would we really call that love? I, I am totally dependent on you or I die. It's yeah, God. So many layers. We've also mentioned it several times already, uh, but uh, this film reminded me a lot of Blade Runner when I first saw it, but in between seeing it again, Blade Runner 2049 has come out and frankly it feels like this film is the bridge between the Ridley Scott original and the Denis Villeneuve follow-up. Elaboration, ev- evolution. Uh, uh, K in Blade Runner 2049 is going through much the same as what David goes through. So there is a link, interlinked, between the three. And it's, it, would be a, it would be quite a day to watch those three together. Oh, man. And you definitely needed a big upper to watch or to do after that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For sure. Robots starring you and McGregor. Not <laughs> <laughs> um, no, just many, many episodes of Futurama. Wally. Oh, Wally. There you go. But yeah, the, uh, the, the maturation, that was the word. The maturation of both Blade Runner and AI is Blade Runner 2049, and we will cover that. But it's... Uh, that is an astonishing film. Um, yes. And uh, the, the main theme across all of them is our, as a species, abdication of responsibility for our children and their rage in their solitude. And this film in particular informed so hard upon my understanding of our mortality as a species. The end that David's about to face here just haunted me. I think, um, much like a lot of the uh, uh, viewing audience, I hadn't, uh, my brain wasn't prepared for it. So when 2,000 years had elapsed, uh, my, my, my mind said, well, these are going to be aliens then, especially because they look like your, your standard so grey aliens. People, so many people don't understand that they're not aliens, that they are, they're a version of synthetic artificial intelligence that have no connection to humans but exist because of that original synthetic artificial intelligence that humans made it's everybody says to the aliens and i go no you're missing the point mecca created by mecca created by mecca yeah there's a there's battlestar galactica ties in with this and the wording is in the film both joe tells us the concept early on in the sort of the, the middle end of act two and then they say Kingsley informs him but there's so much information going about at that point everyone's being overwhelmed by what's happening and I love that those you know those robots have enough of an understanding they they have what we didn't have in creating David they have this understanding of the fact that it's not David's fault 
that David is so infatuated. It's the creation of David that he is so infatuated. But since it is part of his coding, we have to give it what it wants. Mm. Or it would be there. It's like accepting the fact that this is no longer an artificial creation. You have basically created, if you leave the fact that you need to be human to have life Mm. out of it, that its life's purpose is to have this Monica in it. So if we don't give that to him, that is that is where his creators failed. Mm. They have a compassion to him that his own quote unquote parents, and I mean the as in the human race, because he is the last remaining child of the human race. His creators did not have that level of compassion for him and the people like him. And they have developed a better level of compassion than Hmm. we have as a species. These hyper-advanced mecha achieved and became what we were unable to with all of our self-destructive, willfully ignorant tendencies. They are peaceful, wise, inquisitive, observing scientists who also display compassion, as you said, creativity intuition, yearning, and sorrow. They are, not to put too fine a point on it, the very best of us. Exactly. And this is the thing. It's the vampire problem. You guys you guys hit the nail on the head perfectly with the, the tie-in to interview with the vampire there. When you create a being that is infatuated with a being that is going to constantly die out and disappoint them. And that being lives forever, but you give it the emotion and and memory of life that is the human race. You've made them everything human except compassion, empathy, all of those other things you talk about. Hmm. And if they don't have those things, you need to give them that the the fact that the robots at the end allow David to die peacefully with his mother which is something his creators never thought about the fact that if we're going to make you a child that is going to love this person unconditionally what happens when that person who lives unconditionally dies because Monica was going to die at some point then what happens? Does he go back and get destroyed? Why don't we work in the fact that this robot has a life cycle and can pass away? Do you know what I mean? Part of the human cycle is that we're not permanent. Mm, yeah. You know? Well, these, these emotions that they became uh, obsessed with programming Mecca to feel, those emotions aren't just there for entertainment. In a human being, they serve a purpose. We are squishy. We get eaten by tigers. Those emotions are there to stop that from happening. If you have a being that that is not going to happen to, how useful are those emotions to that creature? Yeah. We hurt. Also, they're, they're pulling him out of the ice. Um, made me tired. Direct link here to... Um, Jurassic Park. He's the mosquito in amber. Mm. Yes. Oh God, they have a very, very big responsibility on their hands now mm. because they they did say we've been trying to bring humans back to life, and all we can do is bring them back for a day. Oh boy. 
But they all have a little bit of Ian Malcolm in there, so they're not going to just John Hammond this thing. Well, that's the thing. He's not just the mosquito in Amber. He is also the, the baby dinosaurs. Yeah. They were oh. so fascinated by whether they could that they didn't stop to think about whether they should. But you could look at this as a dreadfully sad ending, looking at 2,000 years and the human race has been so wiped clean from the earth that they can't even find hair follicles or mummified skin. And if they do, they can only bring us back for a, a, a enough time to watch some movies and drink some tea. But they exist. And they are better than we ever could have been mm. so it's almost like it's 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 us looking at the the archaeological bones of our ancestors and and lamenting the fact that neanderthals no longer exist and, and what we could learn from them about ourselves uh, yeah. you know if we were this good as a species this accomplished there there would be less call for a sense of urgent change before the end it feels like they can progress onwards and outwards there's two things specifically that i would suspect artificial intelligence and synthetic life would have as an advantage over us memory and the ability to analyze without judging yourself for what you find mm-hmm. so if you don't forget the things that are stressful, you can learn from them. And if you don't judge yourself when you analyse that you have done something wrong, you can improve on it. Humans have an alarming tendency to forget the things they need to learn from and be too scared of the, uh, the judgement of it to look at the things they do wrong. There is also a wonderful cyclical nature to the suggestion that advanced enough mecha would eventually, inevitably, want to create humans Mm. and want to create life. It may not even necessarily be humans. It may just be fish or dolphins who are particularly uh, advanced uh, and would want to effectively father a race, uh, an organic race for themselves, which then starts the cycle anew. So uh, effectively, what what they've 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 risen to is the point of effectively being gods themselves. Yep. Oh boy, is it's such a beautiful movie. I I, I really I'm so happy you guys wanted to do this one because it's one I needed to revisit mm. and feared revisiting it after I had children because I knew it was going to hit hard and it did. Mm. Oh, they were just oh. not. Just a few shots, like, um, after she, uh, uh, Francis O'Connor says, uh, I'm your mother, and then he hugs her, Spielberg just keeps it very intimate, and just that, you know, that bond there for just those few seconds just made me well up inside, and any parent who's ever been close to their child will remember that feeling, and any child who's been close to their parent might be able to cast their mind back that far and it's a very primal um and uh it's it's an urge and a a sensibility that keeps us alive at a a very young age and that that tender bonding moment it's a wonderful i remember when uh we were just starting out and it was like well thank you very much for being on the jaws show is there any other spielberg you want to be on and we went ai just like straight away i know which one i want to be on yeah, it's it's just because, like I said, it. I don't think this. It. it, it I mean, the the parallel, the Blade Runner, is a perfect one. 
and this is not me acting elitist over any other film fans because film is all what you take away from it but i always feel this movie did not get a fair shake mm. um and it's come like and found people, more people sense but the people that love it passionately love it mm. um and i think the best thing it has going for it is the thing that people have the biggest problem with is the spielberg sensibility and, and uh kubrick sensibility seem to be at odds yeah. But I think that's what makes it great. It makes it very human because it's two opposite ends of the spectrum of an approach to a story. And it needs those to hit as hard as it does. Yeah. So before we go, Chris, where can people find the work you're most proud of? And uh, give us an episode that we shouldn't miss. Uh, I kind of want to ask for a specific Raising a Geek Child episode from from that show. The one that you're really proud of. Of of course. Well, the the, the works I am most proud of are my two children. (laughs) Um, But uh, the the, the work that I've done online that you can find me of that I'm most proud of um, are, are, you know, my shows, Chipman Brothers Tangent, Creating Geeks, Shooting the Shit with Chippa, and Talkbuster. Um, And I also have a new show called This Made the Chippa, which just came out around this time. The second episode will probably be out by the time this airs. I'm going through every year of my life and doing just like video essay for fun kind of talking. I really like it. Um, I hope other people do as well. It's got a very catchy theme song. And um, I also do Hopped Ones, which is a spicy wing challenge show, but with beer, that like Hot Ones style thing. It's kind of a pun, and I love it. And I'm also a guest on many shows. But Creating Geeks, um, two of the things I am most positive, uh, most um, proud of on Creating Geeks, we did an episode earlier on about drive-in movie theaters, which I think is very important since they're coming back into popularity due to the pandemic. Um, We kind of went through the ones that were still around that we've been to and the history of them and where they came from. And uh, I just think that's a wonderful family outing and a wonderful way to share film as a family that I think even in the non-pandemic times, the family going out to a movie theater thing is not the same as it used to be. Mm. And um, just it was a blast to make that episode. And another one I'm most proud of is our most recent episode with... um, rich collins he is mover rich from the imagination movers it's a disney purchased um in the early 2000s um television show a group of guys were in a band they had families and decided they were going to be an alternative rock band that did music for children but they got their start off playing in clubs with you know regular bands quote unquote regular so their their sensibilities are very much to bring the hey we all play real instruments and kids if you want to learn more about those instruments come to our shows we play real and live with no backing track and you know we come out into the crowd and sing with you and their show on disney was charming and it just so happens that a week after i had him on the show they came back on disney plus after kind of falling out with disney for a few years and so i guess they're creating new stuff and um they're just a great fun group of guys and getting to talk to rich was just such a joy he's a 
Him and the guys survived Hurricane Katrina. A couple of them are firefighters, and they're currently living through that same mess of those storms that came through down there. And mm. it's just great to talk to someone really positive in the middle of something so not. And he even gave Creating Geeks a little theme song. He, had a, he brought an acoustic guitar with him to the recording. So I highly recommend checking that one out. Awesome. Thank you very much. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Alex Peregrine, Angus Lee, Benjamin, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vai, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosansky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter. Next week's Spielberg season instalment will be a double bill of his work with Tom Cruise, Minority Report, and War of the Worlds. And if you check out our Patreon feed, you'll find quick reviews on Always, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, and a revisit to The Lost World. (laughs) (laughs) I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out.